Hello there, this is Jared Silker, and welcome to the Building Better podcast, where I interview sustainability changemakers in the building industry. Today, I'm joined by Molly Freed from the International Living Future Institute. Molly is going to help us better understand the crazy web of water in the built environment. Potable water, non-potable water, rainwater, wastewater, gray water, we've got lots to talk about. And codes, people, codes and permitting are key. Molly has stories to make sense of all of this, and there's also urine harvesting. Yes, it is a thing. So stay tuned, and please enjoy episode five of Building Better. Uh, hey, Molly, uh, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jared. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited. Awesome. We've got our first uh, guest outside of Seattle, uh, Molly's calling in from New York City. And uh, I think we've got uh, a little bit of a different episode today. Uh, We've got a great guest in Molly who uh, most notably knows lots more about water than I do. And so I think we're all going to learn a lot. Um, Molly Freed is manager of buildings and water at the International Living Future Institute. Um, We'll go with ILFI uh, from here on. Um, what, uh, yeah, what are, what are kind of your primary responsibilities at ILFI? Yeah. So I am part of the technical support services team, uh, which means basically anytime a project registers for any of our programs, I help shepherd them through all the way to certification. So if they have any questions, uh, need any additional support, consulting services, that's us. Um, and then specifically I do, Uh, I am the subject matter expert at the Institute for Water, um, and for our buildings, that usually takes the form of rainwater harvesting for potable uh, use or really any type of on-site water reuse systems. And then what we're kind of going to get into today, but more specifically the permitting of those systems, which is really a, uh, a difficult and complicated subject. Nice. Yeah, we, we'll, we'll, we'll tackle all those challenges. Uh, and speaking of challenges, uh, most listeners probably know this, but um, ILFI, among other programs, uh, uh, operates the Living Building Challenge, uh, which we've covered on previous episodes. Um, but I'm excited, as, as alluded to, we're going to dig deep, um, maybe even a deep dive into water I think maybe just to get started, like how, how did you get into this specialty area? Um, you know, there's lots of parts of, of a living building challenge, but uh, yeah, why, why water? Yeah, it's kind of a funny story, actually. I um, have been known to say in the past that I peaked in high school. And the reason for that is that I <laughs> grew up in Seattle, actually, um, and went to Chief South High School, which is a local public school. And uh, my senior year, I put on a week-long conference called World Water Week that got a fair amount of local press coverage. It was an awesome event. It continued to run and actually continues to run um, in a very like a, a different iteration now. But as a result of some of that local press, um, some local architects, this was back in 2011, uh, read about me, this little young phenom, <laughs> and um, they asked me to be a part of a panel where they were discussing urban infill projects for basically their future 
market, which was millennials, which was me. So I was asked mm-hmm. to serve on this panel and the panel ended up being at the Living Future Unconference in Vancouver. Oh. Uh, so I was just an 18-year-old kid uh, and it was my first exposure to regenerative design and I was just totally hooked. And so, you know, I went to college, I stayed in touch with the people I served on the panel with and they helped me get linked into this world. And a few years later, I found myself working at ILFI uh, and really started to use your pun diving into the water requirements specifically. I mean, one of the beautiful things about the Living Building Challenge and CORE and our other programs is that they really focus on holistic regenerative design. So we aren't just looking at energy, just looking at materials. We ask our project teams to always consider uh, the myriad impacts that their buildings can have. And so I get to work with project teams who maybe haven't thought a lot about water or their impact on the watershed before. And it's really fun to see all the different areas that we can improve and lessons that can be learned. Yeah, that's awesome. Great, uh, great way to get started there. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I think, well, I guess first we should maybe cover um, for those not familiar, uh, the Living Building Challenge water requirement is really all about managing water on site and preferably all of it, uh, stormwater, rainwater, uh, potable water, non-potable water. So mm-hmm. any, do you want to add any more there in terms of like what we're kind of, what you're dealing with from a programmatic standpoint? Totally. So the water pedal requirements in the Living Building Challenge are divided into two imperatives. And the first one is a core imperative, which means that any project pursuing pedal certification or doing core certification has to do this imperative. And it requires a reduction of potable water use below a baseline. Um, It's a 50% reduction for new construction, 30% for interiors and renovations. So project teams achieve that reduction in a bunch of different ways. You can look at low flow fixtures. That's a really great start. But for most new construction projects to achieve a 50% reduction, there's going to have to be some type of on-site reuse. And so that can look like capturing rainwater and using that to irrigate, or it can be, you know, taking uh, gray water, lightly used water from sinks and showers and recycling it and using it to flush toilets or um, something like that. So throughout the course of this podcast I'll just refer to that generally as water reuse um but so yeah that's the core requirement is a, a reduction in your potable water reuse and then as you were kind of alluding to the the next step up to achieve the water pedal is called net positive water and for those projects we are looking for project teams to harvest all of the water that they use on site meet all of their demand with water that they can source from on site so for most of our project teams that is takes the form of harvesting rainwater for potable water. Um, and then most of our project teams also then use their gray water or black water and reuse that for their non-potable water needs for irrigation, for toilet flushing, et cetera. Um, and yes, there are stormwater requirements. Those who are designing in Seattle, uh, you know, King County and the state of Washington already have very stringent stormwater requirements, so it shouldn't be too much of a stretch for them. Um, but we also have a requirement, and we can get into this a little bit, but we have a requirement that no potable water 
can be used for non-potable uses, which means we don't allow public teams to use drinking water to water their plants or to flush their toilets. Right. And maybe this is a good point to kind of position water or talk about water and kind of like, I find it such an interesting resource Mm -hmm. in that it's compared with energy, for instance, it's, it's such a regional issue and a regional resource, um, uh, you know, f- from a very personal level at buildings, of course, we think about having clean water, fresh water to, to drink. And then, mm-hmm. you know, when we think about conserving, as you just noted, you know, well, yeah, we want to, we want to conserve that clean water. So, you know, we, we have enough, um, but then we really get into these, um, complicated issues of um, snowpack and forest management and all the rest you you can probably uh, yeah. continue <laughs> continue on the list but it's it's um, it's really a um, really neat uh, web of connections um, that include climate of course yeah and water is you know water is interesting because I think the timing and, and the way that water is delivered to us really is important you know with with solar it kind of when you talk about solar as a resource it really is just kind of one form coming in at you and with Mm -hmm. precipitation it varies and and that's where we run into issues so in Seattle for example the way you know we aren't in immediate risk of um, a lack of drinking water but as climate change impacts start to take effect we're going to see more of our precipitation falling as rain instead of snow and we in Seattle rely on a snowpack uh, in the summer. Um, and so that snowpack is going to be smaller and it's going to start melting off faster. Uh, mm-hmm. And in addition, like you're, you know, you're alluding to this, this web and the watershed really is a web. Um, we aren't the only ones. The human drinking water is not the only um, demand on our watershed. We also obviously... Um, have to maintain ecosystems, salmon runs. There's a certain level of water that uh, we have to maintain so that our floating bridges don't collapse. So, um, (laughs) you know, there's a lot of demand on the water in our watershed. And so, plus, as everybody has noticed, you know, we're growing at a really rapid rate. We're uh, urbanizing a lot. And so there's just a lot of demands on our water system. And the more we can reduce those, the better. So how about um, like where you are in New York, what, what's the like water, you know, equation there or, you know, take your pick uh, some other spots that, you know, would be very different than the Northwest. Yeah. New York is kind of, New York has been really interesting to me because I, you know, as I said, I grew up in Seattle and I thought I knew what it was like to live in a rainy city. And I learned that rain falls very differently on the East coast. Um, Yeah. And they face kind of a similar problem as we do in terms of the amount of water they receive and the timing they receive. So they, New York and Seattle and many other major cities are on a combined sewer system, which probably most of your listeners are aware of. But for those who aren't, um, it's when your sewage system and your stormwater system are combined. They're both treated by the same municipal plant. And when there's a major storm system or a major storm event, it actually can overwhelm the municipal plant. It can't treat all of the water that's entering the system. And so it is forced to actually just release untreated sewage and stormwater into natural water bodies, 
Um, and this happens, at least in Seattle, you know, almost 300 times a year, um, disproportionately in black and brown neighborhoods, um, and obviously renders those swimming areas and, and the ecosystems there, it, it does some serious damage. And so New York faces a really similar problem with the amount of rain that we receive here. And also there's a lot of uh, major storm events that can kind of take down the municipal infrastructure. We saw Superstorm Sandy really do some damage to wastewater treatment plants there as well. Um, and that's where on both the resiliency aspect of those storm events and on the combined sewer systems, that's where we see on-site water systems really making a big impact. Yeah, I can see if you can if you can stack those projects up and, and know where they are, you know, that helps um, that helps those municipal uh, infrastructure um, to manage uh, overall water. Another fascinating part about water is is just how cheap it is and and sort of how we value water. Um, and so I don't know what are you what are you seeing and tracking on that side of things? Yeah, you know, water costs are really interesting. Um, you're right. In general, they are very low. In general, water is very cheap. Um, in Seattle specifically, actually, even though I think relative to the value of water, we still charge very little for it. Seattle does have some of the highest water bills in the country. Um, a family of four in Seattle will pay almost six times as much as a family of four in Phoenix for wow. a month of water. Yep. Um, and part of that comes from the stormwater fees to account for our combined sewer system and the efforts that our utility is making to, you know, reduce the number of combined sewer overflows that happen, which is great. Um, yep. Another reason it's, it's very high in Seattle is to offset the cost of the recent Brightwater um, municipal treatment plant that was built uh, to treat, you know, to, to manage the additional waste that's coming from our growing city. Um, and we're going to start seeing some more increases in water bills around the country as additional municipalities and utilities have to invest in updating their infrastructure. So um, mm -hmm. the American Water Works Association has estimated that there's about a trillion dollars worth of upgrades necessary to maintain service to meet demands over the next 25 years. Um, wow. Yeah. And so those costs are going to be passed on to consumers. And so we're, we're expecting that water prices will continue to go up, which on the one hand, you know, to, to, to me as somebody who wants to say, who wants to make a better financial case for reducing water, my first thought is great. <laughs> if water yeah. costs more, then, you know, it will incentivize people to invest in water reduction technology. Great, right? Sure. The problem comes when you look at the data around people who are unable to afford water now. Um, even before the pandemic, there are 2 million Americans who don't have running water in their homes. Um, and obviously there's an equity overlay to that number. Uh, water bills make up a disproportionate percentage of the income of marginalized communities, predominantly black and brown communities. Um, yep. And those are also the communities that bear the brunt of lower quality service and um, are more likely to fall victim to water shutoffs. Um, and we've also seen from data in Detroit specifically, um, 
from We the People of Detroit, an organization that we've worked with in the past, how these watershed ups can exacerbate existing poverty. So, um, and and even, you know, affect families where child protective services have been known to take children away from their parents when they can't afford their water bill. So obviously there's there's this balance, right, of like we want water to be to cost an amount equivalent to its value, but we also believe that water is a human right. And sure. yeah, and so those two things kind of can can feel like they're intention, but we've seen some amazing work come out from frontline communities like We the People of Detroit and our friends um, in Portland out of Recode, a nonprofit down there that have um, looked at this issue and actually identified the potential for Medicare and Medicaid to help families pay their water bills since it is mm. so closely tied to health. Anyway, sure. so, so there's a lot there, um, but I, I'm excited to see what some economists and academics and frontline communities and advocate groups can, can come up with in terms of restructuring these utility payments down the line. Yeah, no, that's fascinating and so important and I think really um, brings back that theme of you know, regionality and, you know, there's a, there's a local aspect, such a local aspect to this where it's, it depends where you, where you live, what part of the country, what, mm -hmm. what utility you're part of. And there's a big span there in terms of what issues the um, municipalities are dealing with. And then thus like what, what quality of water um, and, and how much it costs. Um, so uh, yeah, that's, that yep. is, uh, there's some pretty wild statistics there. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. So now kind of like looking forward then, um, you know, what are some of these opportunities and then probably barriers to those opportunities uh -huh. to, you know, doing some of the things you, you talked about up front around on-site management, you know, we want to, we want to conserve, we want to, we want to direct our potable water to potable uses. We want to manage rainwater and stormwater on site. And so kind of, yeah, where, where does that lead us? I, I guess mostly in a, in an LBC context, but, but also just overall, you know, conserving our water. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a huge opportunity, I think, in offsetting non-potable water in, um, providing what we call fit for use water. So providing the water that is appropriately treated for its end use. And when you look at the opportunities for that kind of innovation, a commercial office building, really only 5% of the water used in that building is used for drinking water. So there's a 95% offset potential there. Yeah, you look at a, yeah, huge residential buildings. It's more like 50%, obviously, because there's a lot more kind of showering and cooking and drinking happening in residential spaces. But still, that's a massive opportunity um, to deliver with non-potable water. And we're seeing some cities start to respond to that call. So the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission has done a really great job leading the way in this regard. So um, they started with some incentive programs, but have now actually graduated to a requirement 
for all buildings mm. over 250,000 square feet. Um, so those buildings are now required to install and operate on-site non-potable water systems. So they have to take advantage of all available gray water, rainwater, and foundation drainage um, from their building and reuse it for toilet and urinal flushing and for irrigation. Um, and one of the other things that I just love about San Francisco is that they have invested at a municipal level in a purple pipe system. So these buildings can now plug into and pull from municipal non-potable water if they have excess or their demands exceed the um, their building's ability to provide for them. And so basically they're treating this on a more district scale, which is something that we're really excited to see and we want to see from more municipalities as well. Yeah, that's awesome. It's sort of like, how does that compare across the country? Are, are you seeing a trend in that direction or is it sort of a, you know, here and there? Um, or is that the, you know, it, they sound like the, the, the leaders, but what, what else are you seeing? Yeah, they're definitely leading the way. Um, but we are seeing some other incentive programs and kind of teasers in other areas, specifically, obviously, I've been spent a lot of time thinking and talking about Seattle and New York. So in Seattle, the Living Building Pilot Program, which I believe you have spoken about on previous episodes, um, actually requires buildings to offset their non-potable water with non-potable, their non-potable demands with non-potable water. So yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a requirement of the Living Building Pilot Program already, which is the most generous incentive for developers in the city of Seattle. So that's huge, and then. Um, over here in New York, there's a water reuse grant available through the Department of Environmental Protection that offers um, a quarter million dollars to buildings that invest in on-site reuse. Um, and in both cases, we aren't seeing as much uptake as I would like to see. And it's really, I mean, we can get into, I guess maybe this is a good opportunity for us to get into why. <laughs> yeah, sure. It seems like there's uh, you know, in the San Francisco case, we clearly have a um, a mandate, a requirement. Um, so uh, clearly, they're they're moving uh, ahead full force. But in these other areas, for for different reasons, you know, we're we're not seeing um, quite the uptake. It's it's more in in incentive uh, setup versus a mandate. Um, so that certainly is a difference. But what what are some of the the barriers then to, to kind of getting this work done? Yeah, so I think the main barrier is the permitting process. And this is what we've mm -hmm. seen from living buildings for the last 10, 12, 13 years. Um, so not just the water reuse, but most innovative water systems are very difficult to get permitted. Um, there's a bunch of reasons for this. I think most notably is that Drinking water in and, and water in general in America, the fact that you can turn on your tap and get clean drinking water is amazing. <laughs> it's yeah. amazing and it did not happen by accident. And the the officials, the code officials that are responsible for that, the public health officials, they take their jobs really seriously. Understandably so, right? Mm -hmm. They wake up in the morning, they go to work, and their job is to protect public health by making sure that the water that comes out of our taps is as clean as possible. Right. In their eyes also, 
the system is not broken. I mean, most, especially in places like Seattle and places like New York, where there isn't an imminent risk of, you know, drought or water shortage, there's kind of an attitude of like, this isn't broken. The system isn't broken. Why are you coming and asking me to permit (laughs) this crazy innovative system that isn't treating water to the quality that you're getting for extremely cheap, right? It's it's hard, hard to understand. It's hard to make that case. So because of that, it is confusing and difficult to get these systems permitted. It's especially difficult because the authorities having jurisdiction vary depending on what you're doing with the water and where you're pulling it from. And in situations where you might be pulling the water internally from your plumbing, but releasing it on site, that might switch from, you know, a county plumbing department to a state department of health. Um, or a state department of ecology. And so right. you're kind of transcending between the inside of the building and the outside of the building, similarly with capturing rainwater and bringing it inside. Um, so that has been a difficult barrier. And then I think the most, the trickiest part of permitting these systems is that the codes were written for municipal scale systems for basically utilities. <laughs> So mm-hmm. the requirements, when you look at them, they're really designed for massive plants that have, you know, a dozen, two dozen, three dozen people working at these plants, and they're treating millions of gallons of water a day. These standards are not designed for on-site systems that are treating nominal amounts of water and don't necessarily have the ability to hire a full-time engineer to monitor that water, especially if they're only treating it to a non-potable standard and no one's going to be drinking it. Sure, sure. Certainly one thing I hear you saying is, you know, especially if we look across the country, you know, the the confusion and just different approaches are there that as as you, even if you were able to figure something out in one city, you bring that to the next and you've got to sort of do it all over again and figure out the, figure out the web of jurisdictions and um, authorities that are going to approve your plans. Mm -hmm. Um, So that, uh, you know, is probably going to be a problem for, for a long time. Um, But are you, yeah, are you seeing any spots where the, where there are some solutions to, yeah. You know, uh, the, these sort of, in many t- ways, like archaic codes that are working in in a clean water sense, but now we want to sort of prove that we can still get clean water and do all of these other things, which, you know, takes time, of course, when we're dealing with um, codes and, and multiple jurisdictions, but are there any, uh, are there any bright spots yes. there or... No, there totally are. There's some really amazing work being done um, by, and this is a mouthful, but it's a group that's worthy of memorizing the full name, um, <laughs> the, the Blue Ribbon Commission for On-Site Non-Potable Water Reuse. Um, very long I like name. it. I know, yeah. right? But um, the Blue Ribbon Commission, I think, is what we can call them for this conversation. Sure. So the Blue Ribbon Commission is made up of um, a number of public health officials, academics, advocates um, from around the country who have who saw this as a problem, saw non-potable water as an opportunity to make a big impact in um, 
water reduction and decided that because public health officials really need to see the health data and really need to know that public health is being protected, they decided that they wanted to come up with a really thoroughly vetted um, piece of research to basically provide them with that confidence. And so they came up with this uh, report that you can find for free online. It's another mouthful, unfortunately, but it's called the risk, Risk-Based Framework for the Development of Public Health Guidance for Decentralized Non-Potable Water Systems. So we, we call it the Risk-Based Framework, and I think that name is important. So um, what it does is looks at water as and looks specifically at the water's potential for risk. Um, so it provides guidance to help regulators develop programs um, that are more pragmatic and uh, about the design and the operation of these decentralized, you know, these on-site non-potable water systems. So they look at uh, LRTs, which are log reduction targets for pathogens based on the source of the water and the expected end use of the water. So for example, mm-hmm. you don't, you shouldn't have to be expected to treat rainwater to the same extent that you would treat sewage. And you shouldn't expect to treat uh, water that's going to be used to flush toilets the same amount that you would expect to treat um, water that's going to be used to wash hands or even water that's going to be used for subsurface irrigation versus, you know, in a sprinkler system. So the level of risk for exposure to pathogens varies depending on your source and your end use. And so this piece of research basically identifies that indicates an acceptable level of risk and then produces guidance for for permitting systems that actually are safe for their actual use. And so I take it that in most cases the that connection between you know what it's going to be used for is not taken into account. No, exactly, exactly. So yeah. so you're seeing I mean specifically in Seattle you're seeing requirements for on-site gray water systems to coagulate the water this is a little bit techy but to coagulate yeah. the water before it's being used for non-potable use and that just is really over the top for um, a non-potable use there's no reason why a single family home should have to invest in the technology to do that it's really over treating the water mm-hmm. um, yeah and so this Actually, um, this guidance is being used by advocates around the country to propose new legislation around this type of water use. And so ILFI has actually worked with a a number of organizations, including the city of Seattle and the Washington State Department of Health um, and RECO, the organization I mentioned earlier, to pass legislation in Washington state using the risk-based framework for on-site water reuse. And it's really a cross-industry effort um, and bipartisan effort. And we're going to be proposing it again this year. We're really excited and we'll need all the support we can get. So as you're you're pointing out, uh, in some cases, there's uh, just a very costly solution under current permitting rules. Um, but I think you, you had a great, uh, story around this where, um, project team was actually willing to go down that road. Um, but it yeah. still, still didn't 
still didn't work out. Yeah. And that's, you know, it wasn't because they didn't have the technology available. It wasn't because they didn't have the will or the intention to, to install the system. It's because they didn't start the conversation early enough with the code officials. It's purely, you know, they had everything in place. It was purely because they couldn't get it permitted in time to meet their other construction deadlines. Mm. Um, and that's because the process is so time intensive and convoluted and difficult. Yeah. Right. And is there for this, uh, blue ribbon committee and the research you talked about around risk-based framework, are there, are there areas of the country that are, um, likely to pilot some of those code, um, ideas? Yeah, we were really hoping that Washington would be the next one to do it, but I think we might fall behind um, Colorado and Hawaii. Um, there are some. There's another one in the Midwest that I'm forgetting, but yeah, if you if you head to the Blue Ribbon Commission website, they have um, a list of all of their the people serving on the committee, and and those folks are really the ones working in. You'll see they they are the public health officials in these states. They are. It's coming mm-hmm. from these people. Um, yeah, that's so, great. Yeah, so those are the ones really leading the way, but we're hoping yeah. we're hoping Washington can be in the first five or so. Nice, nice, great. So, what else? Um, you know, what else are you thinking about um, from a living building challenge perspective? Um, we talked, we talked about the um, you know the way you've got two imperatives now within water, mm-hmm. um, we talked a little bit about at least in Seattle, we have the living building um, pilot program, which does provide a great incentive to building owners in, in the form of uh, height and floor area ratio. And we're gradually seeing more um, uh, uptake of that program. Um, but so clearly there's a big push on codes and you know how we can make those more appropriate and, and more streamlined. But um, yeah, I don't know what any anything else that is sort of top top for you. Yeah, I would just add that I think we at ILFI are aware of the difficulty of the water pedal and the the barriers that project teams who approach it have experienced. And I think the 4.0 iteration of the water pedal is kind of in direct response to some of those issues. Um, and so. Part of that is that we have started to think less about how our buildings can operate as islands. I don't think that was ever really an intent of the program, but it is kind mm-hmm. of how how a lot of the buildings have approached it. And instead, we're looking at how our buildings can add resiliency to the existing municipal or centralized system. Um, and, you know, you see that in, in solar when, when you're tied to grids and you have little microgrids. And sure. it can apply similar thinking to... Um, to, to on-site water, water systems. And so, for example, um, we can look to Natural Systems Utilities, which is an installer and operator of on-site systems on the East Coast. And so they operate um, 80 systems within the area that was impacted by Superstorm Sandy, and zero of their on-site facilities exceeded effluent permit requirements. Um, meanwhile, Whoa. yeah, zero, which is wild. Um, while a bunch of the centralized facilities were down for weeks or longer discharging that untreated, you know, sewage into the local water bodies. And so, yeah, in general, I would say that ILFI 
with the new 4.0 water pedal has really tried to look at ways that our buildings can add resilience to existing municipal systems and can support utilities that have invested in technologies that we really are big fans of, like non-potable purple pipe systems and sustainable wastewater treatment plants that capture nutrients and um, biosolids and things like that. Seems like there, I, I have a, a vague memory of a, a project doing some like sharing mm. water with a neighbor, which kind of, mm. you know, ha- rings the bell of like uh, district energy solutions where, okay, I've got all this waste heat, I'm, you know, going to share it with, you know, a neighboring building to use it in a different fashion. Seems like that could be the yeah. case in, in water, if, you know, granted, these are like more opportunistic, you know, site by site, building by building solutions, but I no, imagine but there's so, probably... You're so right. You're so right. It's, it's, there's so much potential for that, that is being lost because of rules and codes about sharing water across project boundaries, which is why we need purple pipe systems. <laughs> Because you, are, I mean, you're you're totally right. There's like that that same thinking about district scale systems would be so powerful applied to what think about like a residential system produces a ton of gray water because there's so many showers and sinks running, mm-hmm. um, right? And they, but they, as I mentioned earlier, they don't have quite as much of a non-potable water um, demand. And so, what if a big multifamily apartment building that is next to a car wash or something? could connect and, mm-hmm. and give all of that water to a car wash or could sure. a, a purple yeah, or like a, or a park that exactly. needs irrigation. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And so we've tried, I mean, we've, God, we want to support that so badly, but it's just so illegal <laughs> in so many places. <laughs> I often will say that our buildings, the water pedal specifically, that our buildings are pre-legal. <laughs> We just haven't gotten there yet. We haven't quite gotten there yet. What, um, how about for you, um, you talked a little bit about how you got into water. Um, anything deeper in terms of like, you know, getting into sustainability, into buildings, or, you know, early earlier in your career, or I guess that could also be like, you know, what kind of inspirations along the way have, uh, have you let, have led you to where you are? Yeah, I think it's interesting coming into this industry, not as an architect or an engineer. Um, you know, there's a little bit of imposter syndrome with everything I do because I'm working with these project <laughs> teams, but it, in general, I mean, working with living building challenge project teams is the best part of my job. It's, these are some of the most creative, inventive, inspirational people. Um, they, they don't take no for an answer. Um, <laughs> I find personally very inspiring. Um, but I think one of the advantages of not coming from that more technical background is that I'm able to ask a lot of stupid questions. And often mm-hmm. those questions are the ones that, you know, these people who have been in the industry for a long time say, huh. You know, I don't actually know why we can't do that. Let me look into it. Um, right. Yeah, but I think that's, I mean, I've learned 
so much. I still believe that the built environment has just the most potential to address the urgent demands of climate change. And I'm inspired every day. And we we share that uh, sort of non um, non technical uh, underpinning in our uh, work with with architects and engineers. I guess I I was a chemistry major in college, but ah. I I, have, I, ha- I haven't really um, touched the the lab since then. Um, so you would be good at the red list then, probably. Uh, well, yeah, I I I live in it uh, m- many days for yeah, sure. sure. It's it's bringing back old uh, old memories of college oh, yeah. uh, chemistry. Oh yeah. So what? Um, I don't know. What did we miss? Anything else in in this uh, grand web of of water? When we talked previously about how difficult it is to create kind of a financial incentive for on-site water reuse. One of the financial incentives that people are starting to look at is actually in urine diversion and nutrient recovery. Um, And so, as I mentioned, it's, I know, right. That's kind of (laughs) a pet topic right now. And again, um, it's being led by a bunch of different folks around the country, notably the rich earth Institute, Um, but there's a huge disconnect right now between the nutrients that our bodies are creating and the nutrients that the earth and specifically our agriculture needs. Um, and, you know, in a traditional carbon cycle in an ecosystem where we were all living kind of in tune with the land, the nitrogen and phosphorus that our bodies naturally produce and, and process would be returned to the earth and, um, you know, processed through the carbon cycle. Unfortunately, instead, they are being placed in with um, solid waste and other waste in the municipal wastewater treatment plants and then being, um, you know, treated and released often. And we've seen the impact of large phosphate um, discharges into water bodies in terms of causing huge algal blooms and killing off lots of fish and other um, animals in the in those water bodies. And so there's a negative impact of us pushing all of these nutrients into a wastewater treatment plant that isn't equipped to handle that. On the other hand, we have an agriculture industry that is overmining um, and over extracting phosphorus and nitrogen from the planet in its more naturally occurring forms. Um, mm. And so we have this, you know, we have on one hand this rich nutrient that we are just flushing down the toilet. And on the other hand, we have this industry that really needs that nutrient. And there are people right now working on connecting those two dots. And it's quite, it, it's not that difficult to divert urine from other human solid waste, treat it down to a, a usable form, and you can sell it for quite a bit of money. Um. See, I knew I knew we were going to learn something here today. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, man, the uh, the the water web just uh, keep keeps getting bigger and more complex. That's <laughs> that is fascinating, and I love kind of your depiction of sort of uh, yeah where we are and and where those connections could be if we if we had a more you know mm-hmm. systems based solution mm-hmm. and it sounds like there is actually 
kind of uh, the economics could be there mm-hmm. um, if if we could get. I imagine this gets right back to some uh, <laughs> code, yep. co- code and codes and permitting. Uh, but that's that is uh, that's exciting to know that that's um, out there and 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 moving in in some capacity. Yeah, yeah, and we're you know ILFI certainly isn't leading the effort, but we are very much supporting it. Um, and I think it could hold a lot of potential for some of our project teams to to increase that return on investment for their on-site water systems. Awesome. Let's see that, you know, that seems like a great place to wrap up. Um, Molly, this has been awesome. I've learned a lot. Hopefully listeners uh, have a better understanding of this uh, really rich web of water Mm -hmm. um, and other things, Mm -hmm. um, nutrients that we put into water, um, some fantastic, um, you know, technologies on the scene, some, you know, for some, you know, codes might be boring, but I think this shows that they can be, you know, very powerful um, and, you know, present in this case, some challenges that I think and think and hope we're, you know, on our way to um, solving. So uh, yeah, thanks for outlining all that and, uh, and making us uh, really understand and appreciate all that so much more. Yeah, of course. And, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't say if, if anyone has considered the living building challenge or our core green building standard and said, you know, I'm not sure I, the water requirements seem a bit difficult. Um, I encourage you to take another look and, and reach out to us. And we're super eager and ready to, to work with everyone on achieving whatever their goal for their project is. Absolutely. You, I mean, you've got Molly here to <laughs> help you figure these things out and, yeah. uh, and, pu- and push the envelope and come up with, come up with new ideas. So I yeah. would second that. Um, let's, get, let's get more uh, problem solvers on the case. Yes, exactly. Well, thanks so much, Jared. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for uh, joining us on Building Better. Um, Until next time, thanks for listening. Mm